Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. So far in 2023, 70 people have been killed in 40 mass shootings. Again, that's 70 people dead in 40 mass shootings. And the first month of the year isn't even over yet. I mean, what the hell is wrong with us? America is sick beyond any sort of simple fix now, and while these tragedies have forged several inadvertent heroes, there is nothing good about how we're managing gun violence in America. There are no sudden revelations from Republicans that yes, we have to make laws to protect our citizens and get guns off the street. No, Republicans are in complete compliance with the killers. They use the Second Amendment like a fucking bulletproof vest against safe gun laws. And until they change, this shit is never going to stop. I went down to Monterey Park and was invited to three press conferences like this, and I said, nope, nope, nope. I watched them on my cell phone instead as I walked around the community. And I'll tell you what, I did that selfishly because I didn't have the guts to come up and say the same things we hear again and again and again. That was covered. Sheriff Luna did a magnificent job. Local electeds did a magnificent job. We made sure of that as well. But I walked and listened, knocked on doors, walked into businesses that were still open and just listened to people. Remember someone rolling up, young woman, three young girls in the back and she, can I talk to you? She starts tearing up. She introduced me to her 10-year-old daughter, 8-year-old daughter, and 3-year-old daughter and said, can you do me a favor and can you tell them it's going to be okay? The Secret Service public attack report came out this week claiming that one quarter of all mass attackers are motivated by conspiracies or other sorts of hateful ideology. But the single most important tragic identifier of why a human being becomes a mass killer is personal grievance. Guns are most often the weapons of choice, with semi-automatic or long guns being used in 30% of all murders in the United States. So one would think that getting rid of semi-automatic weapons would just be a no-brainer for any civil society trying to protect itself from mass killings. But no, not us. Why? Because we love our guns too much to let them go. Additional units requested, multiple victims, gunshot wounds. Among the dead, one of the ballroom's popular instructors, Wing Mei Ma, and 65-year-old Mai Nian, a regular at the ballroom who was shot in her car outside. It's almost surprising that we have so many issues with immigration because it would be scary to live in a place where random gun violence is so prevalent. Two proud Chinese-American communities started the lunar year trying to make sense of inconceivable events. Two back-to-back mass shootings rocked the communities of Monterey Park in Southern California and Half Moon Bay just south of San Francisco. Kamala Harris was back in her home state on Wednesday to comfort those communities and show solidarity. Now, Harris isn't just the first female vice president, she's also the first African-American and Southeast Asian-American to ever hold the office. Mark, the vice president of the United States, her motorcade has just arrived. You see there um, her vehicle. Uh, She is going to be 
visiting the scene of that uh, massacre that happened on Saturday night in Monterey Park, uh, the dance studio where, and now we are watching, this is Vice President Harris um, with flowers in hand. And, and noting this is the deadliest mass shooting in LA County. Um, you might imagine that we would see someone with the likes of the Vice President here to, as she tweeted, stand and mourn with the community. And there you see the pictures of those who lost their lives, all between 50 and 70 years old. The killer in Monterey Park, whom police are calling the dance hall shooter, was Chinese American. And get this shit, 72 fucking years old. He resided in a trailer home littered with guns and ammo. His neighbors say that he was a loner with a grudge against the world. But he was a former dance instructor at the same dance hall where he met his former wife 20 years ago. And that's the same dance hall where he fucking killed 11 people over the weekend. He died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound as police closed in. But out of that carnage in Monterey Park emerged a young hero, a doorman who took a chance while the gun was reloading to save himself and countless other victims. So how did you decide what to do? Well, there was a moment I actually froze up because I was, I had the belief that I was going to die. Like my life was ending here at that very moment, but something Something amazing happened, a miracle actually. He, he started to uh, try to prep his weapons so he could shoot everybody. But then it, came, it dawned on me that this was the moment to disarm him. I could do something here that could protect everybody and potentially save myself. So you went for it? Yes, I, I went for it. There was, <laughs> there was thought where I would be, I was thinking about my family and my friends, what their life would be without me. But even those were leisures that I didn't have at the time because I was needed to take action. I needed to get his gun away. Asian Americans are currently the fastest growing racial ethnic group in the United States. The 66-year-old Half Moon base shooter also happened to be Chinese American. He killed seven co-workers in broad daylight on Monday in and around the farm where he worked. And he was caught when an eagle-eyed deputy spotted him inside his SUV and realized its license plate matched the suspect's plate. That killer has been cooperative with police, happy, happy to explain the details of his horrific rampage. He claims that he's not a copycat killer because he didn't know about the shootings in Monterey Park. But the coincidence is heartbreaking for two otherwise peaceful California communities. I wanted to say something about this thoughts and prayers thing, which is every time I hear it, I get so freaking irritated, especially as a person of faith and as a Christian. Let me give you an example. Damar Hamlin goes down, right? He goes down on the field. Everybody offers their thoughts and prayers. What happens if somebody's standing on the field and said, no, 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 no paramedics. No, well, we're offering thoughts and prayers. Do not try to resuscitate him. And then the medical ambulance comes and they say, no, 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 no. We're giving him thoughts and prayers. And then all of a sudden we look at it. We could have, we could have done all these things that we knew exactly what to do. Damar Hanlon passes away and we're like, well, we offered him thoughts and prayers. That's exactly what we're doing with gun violence. Thoughts and prayers require action.
And until we follow thoughts and prayers with action, we're going to keep we're going to keep having these deaths after deaths after deaths across the country. And it's a uniquely American exceptionalistic thing. Not that we're saving lives, but lives are dying violently, and it's only in America. And Wednesday, it was announced that Germany is sending 14 Leopard tanks, and the United States will be sending 31 of our Abrams tanks to help Ukraine fend off Russian attacks. The United States and Europe have just significantly escalated their support of Ukraine. After months of bickering between the allied nations, Germany finally changed its tune. We just got some details from the Germans. They say that their main goal is to create, in the end, two tank battalions that the Ukrainians are supposed to get. That would be about 88 of these Leopard 2 main battle tanks. However, they also say that in the first step right now, they're going to send 14 of these tanks as fast as possible. The Germans also say they want the training for the Ukrainians to start as fast as possible. There was one interesting nuance that we got, Poppy, from the Germans as well, they're saying that they are going to give permission to other European countries that own these tanks to also send these Leopard 2 main battle tanks to the Ukrainians as well. That means the Ukrainians could get a lot of these tanks very quickly because a lot of European nations have these tanks. Now, of course, we know that all this came after some pretty tough negotiations between the Germans and the United States. In the end, the United States apparently relenting to also sending Abrams' main battle tanks to uh, Ukraine as well. Of course, the Ukrainians pretty happy to be getting tanks both of German make and of American make in the not too distant future as well, guys. As winter drags on, the conditions in Ukraine have become untenable and both sides were flagging. But Putin recently hired a private mercenary army. Now, I'm not bullshitting you. He fucking hired a private mercenary army. And they don't give a shit about the rules of war. They're simply criminals killing for cash. So it was decided amongst the allies that whatever they've been doing so far to stop Putin, it's just not enough. The tanks being released are probably too little and too late. It's going to be months before that they even rolled out. But Biden is now talking about sending fighter jets to Ukraine as well. Everyone is afraid of how Putin was going to react to so much firepower coming at him and all at once. What about the fact, though, that it was just on last Thursday that Dmitry Medvedev, the former uh, president of Russia, basically, you know, warned in an oblique way that Russia could use nuclear weapons if they're defeated in Ukraine. He said the loss of a nuclear power in a conventional war can provoke the outbreak of nuclear war. Nuclear powers do not lose major conflicts on which their fate depends. That's central to Russian nuclear doctrine. And that's something we've been, we the West, have been thinking about all along. How do you help Ukraine enough and not get to that point? But also, you don't want to signal that Russian nuclear threats have real weight. What will that teach the Russians and the rest of the world, that nuclear weapons are really useful? And while a nuclear attack seems unlikely, it's fucking Putin. So who knows? But the sooner that the world isolates and defeats Russia, the better we'll all be. And two notes here. First, Russians are great people who they just had centuries of really shitty leadership. And number two, the reason the German tank negotiations took so long is because the Germans didn't really trust us after the Trump-Putin bromance nearly tanked the NATO alliance. But it's all good now, and the Allies are all on the same page. And Godspeed and good luck to Ukraine. I want to start with the spectacle we saw on the House floor a couple of weeks ago 
Republicans taking 15 votes to elect Kevin McCarthy speaker. Forget the partisanship, Republican versus Democrat. As a political pro watching that, what did you think? Well, I was sad for the institution. They should have had their act together. They should have gotten it done. And uh, it was sad. It was nothing to be amused by or laugh at or anything. It was sad for the institution. So, so was it worth his doing it? I mean, yes, it, it was kind of ugly and and not particularly dignified, but he did get elected speaker in the end. Well, 15 times. I mean, that's kind of historic. I'd hope that he would get it done right from the start. What's the challenge? Let's figure this out. Let's get it done. And if not, let's move on to someone else. When your political philosophy is based on fabricated ideas that you just truly don't believe, but that you use to manipulate your base, you are bound to make a fuckload of stupid mistakes. Like the idea that there's a mysterious deep state that controls the government like a puppet. Now, whoever the deep state is, they are related to another non-existent entity. Antifa. These two boogeymen, the deep state and Antifa, are why Kevin McCarthy says that he's having to root out possible suspects within the House of Representatives. Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell have been relieved of their duties on the House Intelligence Committee. Why? Because they are members of the deep state in Kevin McCarthy's head. But really, it's because they had the audacity to stand up against Donald fucking Trump. This is not anything political. This is not similar to what the Democrats did, but integrity matters. And they have failed in that place from Adam Schiff using a position of the intel chair lying to the American public again and again. But McCarthy has been warning for months now that this was the action he was going to take. He's been saying that Democrats made their bed years ago when they made the decision to kick off Republicans from committees. So it's really interesting that he said this has nothing to do what Democrats have done in the past. Also ironic, but not expected, are two new appointments to the COVID panel. Yup, two of them, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Trump's favorite drunk doctor, Ronnie Jackson. Both just happen to be COVID deniers. Political revenge is as old as time, but it's rarely this blatant or this fucking stupid. McCarthy is also gunning for Ilhan Omar, who wants her off the Foreign Affairs Committee, but House Democratic Caucus leader Pete Aguilar is saying not so fast, Kev, and I'm going to quote, it would take a vote and a resolution for that to happen, and the Democratic Caucus stands with Representative Omar that she should serve on this committee. And we'll see how Republicans want to handle this, Aguilar said. Kevin McCarthy's purely partisan move to strip us from our committee is not only a political stunt, but also a blow to the integrity of our democratic institution and threat to our national security. We are thankful to leader Jefferies and House Democrats and even some courageous Republicans for standing with us. While it seems clear that most Republicans are anti-women, based of course on their politics, they are all anti-abortion, anti-equal pay, anti-childcare, and on and on and on. 
it appears that the GOP is going to stick with Ronna Romney McDaniel as chairman of the RNC. We've got to look at early voting. We've got to do absentee voting in the states where it's legal. I will say personally, I would like one day of voting. I don't like these deltas of long voting, but if that's the law in the state, we've got to play by the same rules the Democrats are. Now, one of the things that we're seeing in the initial review of this election is that there were many Republicans that didn't vote for Republican candidates. And we, we have to recognize that if we're fighting each other, we're only helping the Democrats and the Democrats are destroying our country. Now, originally, McDaniel was Trump's handpicked, happy to run the RNC folk. Right? Her chief function is to raise money and set the rules for how campaigns operate. So for instance, Rana guided the RNC to pull out of presidential debates because, and I quote, they're not fair to Republicans. But really, it's because Trump fucking sucks on the debate stage, so they're just not gonna let him debate. But as much as I loathe Ronna Romney McDaniel, she is really brilliantly ineffectual that I hope that she stays on. McDaniel has presided over three election cycles during which her party lost and lost fucking miserably. The Senate and the White House and ended up with a slimmer than expected House majority. So good job, Ronna, and stay there. Friends, I've got a question for you. How do you get avid gun owners and people that support the Second Amendment to give up their guns and go along with anti-gun legislation? How do you do that? Maybe you accomplish that by performing a mass shooting into a crowd that is very likely to be conservative, very likely to vote Republican, very likely to be Trump supporters, very likely to be pro-Second Amendment, and very likely to own guns. You make them scared, you make them victims, and you change their mindset. Also, Marjorie Taylor Greene is gunning for a job she might actually be well suited for. MGT wants to be vice president under Trump. Translation, Marge wants to be Trump's running mate, according to Steve Bannon. Her alliance with McCarthy and efforts to get him elected as speaker were just a preview of her true ambition. And Jonathan, this is, I think a lot of people are just going to try to swallow this idea that it could be a Trump green 2024 ticket. What more are your sources telling you about the viability, the reality that something like this could happen? Yeah, I mean, nobody I talked to is certain that Donald Trump's going to do this. Of course, we're a long way away from him actually making a short list and vetting candidates. He obviously really likes Marjorie Taylor Greene. She is somebody who has immense ambition, as Steve Bannon said to me. Uh, he paraphrased an old Washington saw saying every time she looks in the mirror, uh, she sees a president staring back at her. The vice presidency might be the fastest route to do that. Of course, there are, again, a lot of obstacles. Number one, Trump picking her, uh, him being the nominee, and of course, winning the presidency, all of which remain in doubt. Like Budweiser trots out the Clydesdales for special occasions, Trump loves to trot Marjorie Taylor Greene out at his rallies because, and of course, the crowd goes wild. And now for the main event. We welcome back to the show our good friend Ellie Honig, acclaimed author of the national bestseller Hatchet Man, how Bill Barr broke the prosecutor's code and corrupted the Justice Department. Honig is also a CNN senior legal analyst and a former federal and state prosecutor. You may also know him from his popular podcast Up Against the Mob and or Cafe Brief. 
As a New Jersey federal prosecutor, Honig directed major criminal cases against street gangs, against arms dealers, and even a few corrupt politicians. He was also an assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, where he successfully prosecuted more than 100 members of La Cosa Nostra, including bosses and other high-ranking members of the Gambino and Genovese organized crime families. Honig leverages all of his prosecutorial experience to keep the public informed and as fodder for his excellent new book, Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. So be sure to pick up a copy today, and let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Ellie, always great to have you on the show. And I want to start by saying congratulations. Uh, Congratulations on your new book, Untouchable. How's that going so far? Uh, Thanks, Michael. You know, the book came together really sort of naturally and organically. Um, Here's the story of it. I wrote my first book. Hatchet Man about Bill Barr, which we talked about on your podcast, criticizing Bill Barr for being a political hack. Um, and as soon hey, by as the it way, was it out, should have been called that. That book should have been called Scumbag. But go ahead, please okay, continue. Well, that's one word. Is that one word or two? Hatchet Man's two. Um, I like the I like the typical Michael Cohen uh, conciseness there. Um, and within a couple of weeks of it coming out, the publisher Harper Collins said, "Well, what are you going to do next?" And I said, "I don't really have any other topics in mind." And they said, "Well." What's the question you get asked most? They said, take a week or so, take a few days and think about it. And I said, I'll tell you right now, I don't need a week. How does he get away with it? And that he who gets away with it can vary. Um, A lot of different powerful people I've heard that question about. But of course, the most common he is Donald Trump. How the hell does he get away with it? And what I do in the book is I combine a couple different uh, sort of sources to answer that question. One, I take my own experience as a federal prosecutor and state prosecutor and I found as I wrote this book that there were a lot of parallels between what mob, actual mob bosses, I was a mafia prosecutor, did to protect themselves and what Trump and others do. Two, I took public reporting about Trump and research about not just the Trump case, but Jeffrey Epstein and Bill Cosby and Harvey Weinstein and CEOs and CFOs and other politicians and tried to draw common uh, themes. And then Third is I have original reporting in the book. I tell the story for the first time, the full behind the scenes story of the prosecution of you, Michael Cohen, and how it ended up, how the hell it ended up that you were the only person ever charged for the hush money scheme when you were at most, and I, I think you probably will, you know, at most you were a bag man. You were you signed a couple checks, but the beneficiaries, the real people pulling the strings here, not only did not Donald Trump never get charged. But he never got touched. And there are ways that I lay out in the book that the bosses at DOJ stepped on the SDNY to make sure that Donald Trump didn't take on any damage. So it came together really well. It's it's my attempt based on my own experience and my own reporting to at least give some sense of how it is that smart, savvy, powerful people game the system. And what, what did you end up finding in regard to that as far as my um, as far as my um, yeah. My case was going simply because Jeffrey Berman himself, in his own book, yeah. which I would not recommend anybody reading because <laughs> it's garbage. But the same, the same as it relates to Jeffrey Berman, he acknowledged that he was under a pressure campaign from Maine Justice to whitewash any anything to do with Donald as it related to the hush money payment. Yeah. So, in fact, I've actually filed a bar complaint against him. Uh, for it, and I'm still waiting for somebody to send me a letter, even though I know that they received it, because I do have <laughs> a case number, but it hasn't been assigned yet. 
Here's my first question for Jeffrey Berman, who, and just so listeners understand, Jeffrey Berman was the U.S. attorney for the SDNY during your prosecution. However, at the time, Jeffrey Berman did the right thing. It, it is the right thing, but I'm putting it in scare quotes because of the way he did it. He recused himself because it's not entirely clear, but the, the general thinking was because he was the U.S. attorney. He had been nominated by Donald Trump. He had donated to Donald Trump and therefore felt like it would be, would be best if he separated himself from the case so there's no conflict of interest. And instead, this guy named Rob Kuzami, who I know you dealt with, who was the number two person in the office, ran the case. When you are recused as a lawyer, you are doing that for Correct. ethics reasons. And that means I am out of this case. I don't. I shouldn't be told anything about this case. I shouldn't be updated on this case. Yet somehow, Jeffrey Berman, Mr. Recusal, has this whole story to tell about the case. I don't know whether he's ever been asked, but how did you know all this, Mr. Recusal? He's not a reporter. He didn't report anything. So clearly either, I, I don't know. I don't know what how, what his sources were. I don't know whether he breached that wall of recusal. Um, I, I'm not sure. But no, the, no, the, he states it. Ellie, he states in his book that he was contacted on multiple occasions right. by Maine Justice. So much for the they recusal. They were reaching yeah. out to him. But, and by the way, part of his recusal also had to do with the fact that his brother had some business relationship with David Pecker, uh, who ended up taking over the magazine George at that AMI. his brother Michael had been involved with. Correct. Yeah, yeah. So what I found in my research, and I talked to people on all sides of this, um, you know, all perspectives on this. And, and the the bottom line is DOJ stepped on the SDNY um, in, in making sure that Donald Trump did. Look, they couldn't have charged Donald Trump, but there's two aspects of this. One is when they were coming up with your charging document, Michael, which typically is an indictment, but because you pled guilty was, was what we call an information. There was a real conflict that broke out between DOJ and the SDNY, the actual people running the cases, not Berman. Um, as to how much detail should go into that indictment of Michael Cohen about Donald Trump, because the SDNY knew a hell of a lot more than ended up going into your paperwork. I'll just say that much for now. I don't want to spoil it too much. The other part of it is when Trump left office in January 2021, now he's eligible to be indicted. He's no longer protected by the DOJ policy against indicting the sitting president. And I have reporting on what the process was inside DOJ, how they considered that, and what, well, we all know they haven't indicted him, but how they got there and, and how they came to that conclusion. And like I said, it, it's it's really an absurd result at, from a prosecutor's point of view or just from a member of the public's point of view that in this whole scheme, the only person who got charged with it was you. And, and you know, you did time. I mean, I know you pled to other things, but you, you were locked up because of this, Michael. And- Everyone from Donald Trump to David Pecker to Alan Weisselberg on down the line ended up skating. And I think that's a really interesting case study. When we dig into how could that be, you see some of the weaknesses in our system, some of the ways that powerful people exploit it, and frankly, some of the ways that prosecutors miss the mark. And I'm quite critical, I should say, of prosecutors, not just at the SDNY, but in general throughout this book. I love the fact that you're now critical of prosecutors. You and I have had this debate on many, many occasions here. You know, yeah. ultimately, you know, like they do the best that they can. And you're you're really a stand-up well, former listen, prosecutor yourself. Listen, but this book, I'm excited. I, I, my first book was criticizing Bill a, Barr, and this one is heavily critical of Merrick Garland and many other prosecutors. So yeah, I'll, yes, I'll, but I'll it's criticize easy, a prosecutor. It's easy to be. 
Sure, but it's easy to be critical of Bill Barr. He's just a fucking yeah. asshole. But putting all of that aside, Untouchable is actually yeah. <laughs> it's it's a great um, compliment to my book, Revenge, yeah. where I talk about the other charges. I plead guilty and I acknowledge my complicity in the hush money payment to Stormy Daniels yep. on behalf of and at the direction of Donald Trump. But the other allegations that I had to plead guilty to, and I've said this to you on multiple occasions, yep. privately, as well as on this podcast and on television, I've said it. I never committed tax evasion. I never yep. misrepresented myself to the bank. Uh, nor, you know, these, these um, claims that were being brought against me were really done the way I describe it as a, a hostage video whereby they had a gun to my wife's head and they said, either you plead guilty to what we tell you um, are the charges on a Friday to a Monday, right. first time ever, or we file an 80-page indictment that includes your wife. And there was no way in the world that I was ever going to put her in harm's way. And yeah. so I did what I had to do to protect my wife and my family. I think, and Michael, I think our books are... are interesting bookends to one another in that respect. I mean, you give the perspective, really a unique perspective on what it's like to be in the crosshairs of the Justice Department. I mean, I don't think people understand how terrifying that is, how how precarious your position is financially, personally, your liberty, your, you could go to jail. And, and yes, prosecutors do my, have various- My wife's liberty, <clears throat> yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's the sort of the ultimate pressure tactic. And I think there's a fair debate about whether that's fair or ethical or not, especially if they didn't actually intend to charge her, which I don't know the answer to. I, what I give in this book also is the other side. What was happening inside the SDNY, inside DOJ, when they're trying to figure out how to charge you, how to charge other people, will they charge other people? And really, in the bottom line analysis, it's not fair, it's unjust, it, it's indefensible that you are the only person who ever got charged for this. And I give the sort of behind the scenes prosecutorial machinations behind that. Yeah, it is a perfect bookend. But let me just move on for a second, because yeah. we're going to talk about another institution that seems to be all fucked up now. And I'm referring to the Supreme, of the, <laughs> the Supreme Court of yeah. the United States, right? About the leak um, at the Supreme Court yes. that they just can't seem to investigate on their own. Do they not yeah. care that they're now seen, right, or that they're being seen at their lowest approval rating ever in the history of the Supreme Court. I mean, because the, the justices were interviewed, but they weren't interviewed under oath. And you as a prosecutor, former prosecutor, know if you're not doing it under oath, well, there's no penalty really for lying. The question I want to ask you is why? And if Alito leaked the Hobby Lobby draft, right? Would it make sense that he would do something like this again? I mean, where is the independent investigation of the court? So I, I mostly share in that view. Um, I, I, I understand fully why the Supreme Court's approval levels at the lowest level ever, and they deserve it, by the way. I've been very critical of them, not only for being nakedly political, for these various breaches that have occurred, but also... I'm kind of tired of being hectored by whether it's Justice Alito or Justice Amy Coney Barrett or Justice uh, Breyer, for that case, all finger wagging at us. We're not political. 
The only reason people think we're political is because the media and we're not political because we say we're not political. How about showing that in your actual actions? The fact that they've become so eminently predictable. You know where every case mm -hmm. is going to come out. And you know how you know where every case is going to come out? You go, what do conservatives want? What do liberals want? The six are going to be here. The three are going to be here. Maybe once in a while, one or two may cross over and you need two, obviously, to swing the result. Um, from the Bush versus Gore decision on through, uh, uh, you know, the, the Dobbs decision overruling Roe. Now, regarding the leak, so you're right, Justice Alito didn't actually leak the opinion, but he did, according to this this guy who ran this sort of influence campaign, he did loose lip sync ships. He did mention at a dinner, allegedly, how the Hobby Lobby decision was going to come out five to four and that he, Alito, was writing the decision, which ended up being five to four. Hobby Lobby won and Alito wrote the decision. We didn't actually see the written ruling. The Dobbs leak, of course, was basically 99.9% .9 of what exactly ended up being the final decision. I, my view on this investigation that they're doing inside the Supreme Court is there's some home cooking going on here. Like, if they really wanted to know, let me put it this way. If someone came down to Chief Justice John Roberts and said, you have to figure out who did this leak, you have to do it within the law. But if you don't figure out who, who committed this leak within a month, the world's going to get struck by a meteor. And so you have to do it. They would find that out in two days. They can absolutely figure out who did this leak if they want to. But remember who they delegated this to was the Supreme Court's marshal, or I may not even be getting the title right. FBI is right up the street, by the way, if you really want to figure this right. out, they'll crack it for you. But the Supreme Court is the ultimate hoity-toity, you know, what goes on in this marble palace is our business and we shall figure it out ourselves. And so I'm kind of skeptical that they ever give us a real answer as to, and by the way, as to who leaked it, I'm like 50, 50 on this. And I'll tell you, I'm, this is the speculate, the fun speculation part of this. When it first came out, my, my initial instinct was that's gotta be one of the liberal, I don't know, justice clerk staffers, just angry and trying to sort of warn the world and, and lashing out. But then I thought about it more and I said, well, but who actually stands to gain here? Because at the time mm -hmm. it was right. It, they, there was the five conservative justices who wanted to straight up overrule Roe. And Roberts was trying to pull people to the middle. Joan Biskupic from CNN has reported on this. And if he pulled one of them to the middle, which would have been not quite overruling Roe, but, you know, gutting it, that would have that would have meant they would not be overruling Roe. And I think if whoever leaked this their motivation could have been, let me freeze those five justices in place because now it's going to be impossible for any of the five to change and go over and join Roberts in the middle because if they do, everyone will know that they change position and they'll be accused of being spineless and, and that kind of thing. So, you know, there would have been an incentive either way. I genuinely, it's like a coin flip to me, whether it came out of, but I think one of those two will end up being the story. Probably. So to be exact, the they ended up bringing on a court martial. I mean, I, I don't even know where this name comes from, but her <laughs> name happens to be Gail Curley. Okay. And she was the one that they asked to oversee this probe, right? And she went ahead and she put out a statement on her own right. in regard to this because obviously there was a lot of people who were very unfulfilled. We seem to be very unfulfilled as a country right now with holding anyone other than Michael Cohen accountable. Right, right. But she writes into this statement that she spoke with each of the justices some several times, right? As we would say, my grandma would say, oh, Baruch Hashem, right? Yeah. Thank God. <laughs> I mean, right? I mean, she spoke to some several times. Right. And that the justices, and I'm going to quote here, 
actively cooperated, asking questions and answering mine. And then she further goes on, I followed up on all credible leads, none of which implicated the justices or their spouses. <laughs> right? Adding I that wonder who she's referring basis, to there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I wonder too. Hello, Jeannie. Right? And then finishing up and saying, on this basis... I did not believe that it was necessary to ask the justices to sign sworn affidavits. Now, with all due respect, Gail, I think that you have two people on this podcast for certain, myself and my friend Ellie over here, that would disagree with you. I believe that they should have signed affidavits because if it was you, you would have been forced to sign an affidavit. Clearly, I would as well, right? Yeah. So why do they get to escape what the rest of us don't. I totally agree. It's home cooking. It's soft peddling of powerful people. And by the way, so a couple things on this. First of all, Justice Alito, and I've written about this with the Hobby Lobby decision, I don't find him credible. He denied, he said, I never said a word about, I categorically deny all of that. Yet there are emails from the time showing that somehow this guy who, and his wife who had dinner with the Alitos just week. Okay, so here, let me backtrack. When the Hobby Lobby decision was argued, this guy and his wife sat in Justice Alito's special seats in the Supreme Court. Each justice, I guess, gets four tickets or two tickets to each argument. These two folks had Justice Alito's tickets. They sat in the courtroom for the Hobby Lobby, okay? Then a couple weeks later, they go to dinner with the Alitos, and then there's emails showing those people who went to the dinner with the Alitos are emailing back to the guy at the, at the influence campaign saying, hey... They told us that it's going to be 5-4, that Hobby Lobby's going to win, and that Alito's writing the opinion. And that's exactly how it played out. Now, Alito has said, no, absolutely not. How'd they know that? Maybe it was a lucky guess. I mean, yeah, you could have seen that it was going to be a close decision, and maybe you could have guessed that Alito would write it. I don't know. I, I have questions about Justice Alito's credibility. But look, Michael, we see all the time, I write about this in the book, the more powerful you are, the more consideration, the more people are likely to sort of tap dance around you. I'll give you a couple other quick re recent examples. The January 6th committee, by and large, did a very good job, in my view. Very effective, really advanced our understanding of what happened. However, they served subpoenas left and right. They held Steve Bannon in contempt. They held Peter Navarro in contempt, as they should have. But what happened when they tried to subpoena their own fellow members in Congress? Kevin McCarthy, Jim Jordan, on down the line. Nothing. Kevin McCarthy and Jim Jordan flipped them the bird. And what did the committee do? Nothing. Did they seek contempt? No, absolutely nothing. So people were treated absolutely differently there based on they're powerful. They're members of Congress. That's one example. And I also give examples in the book. Look, if you look at DOJ policy, it says specifically, if this is a case that's likely to draw national media attention, if this is a prominent politician or other prominent figure, it has to go up to higher and higher levels of review. And I give some examples in the book. When I had cases, when I was a little low, you know, line level player at the Justice Department, I had a couple cases that hit on celebrities or hit on famous people that if they if there wasn't a famous person, one of them involves a major league baseball player, pretty well-known major league baseball player. And because it involved a well-known guy, if, if, it, if it wasn't a well-known baseball player, I would have just made the decision myself. Do we charge not? Because it involved this famous, influential guy, we had to go up and up and up the levels. And the higher up you go in these levels, 
the more people there are who can step on a case or say, I don't see it or no. And that, but your case, Michael, was micromanaged to death. Every word that was written went all the way up the chain in the SDNY, all the way up the chain at DOJ. And that resulted in everyone but you getting sort of a, a soft pass. You know, I'm going through the same thing right now in California. I followed the bar complaint against this guy named Brent Blakely, who was representing me in regard to the defamation case uh, with Stormy Daniels against myself and Trump, as well as bringing uh, an action against her uh, right. for making the statements that she did in violation of the non-disclosure, yada, yada, yada. That's what they turned and they said to I'm 18 months into this thing. Right. He actually acted and negotiated a settlement with the Trump. The whole thing is just beyond crazy. And I keep saying to the folks that are there, well, where's the decision? It shouldn't take 18 months when right. there's clearly an ethical violation of a lawyer acting for his best interest, which is against the interest of his client, meaning me. Yeah. And so they said, well, because you're high profile, this high profile <laughs> bullshit is just, I mean, it's just fucked up because well, at the end of the day, yeah. it doesn't help you to be high profile. In fact, to the contrary, it hurts you. It, it, it does. I mean, it can go either way, actually, Michael. You know, it's interesting because in a lot of respects, it can help you. But sometimes prosecutors like to like to chase hides, as we say. And if they see, oh, Michael Cohen, he's famous, I'll, you know, or, or whoever. You know, arguably this is this happened. Some people argue with Martha Stewart. Would they have prosecuted a regular unknown person for doing what Martha Stewart did? So it can cut both ways. You're the right. answer to that one is yes. There was a guy in Otisville that was with the identical, identical claim. And he's just an average rich guy who happens to live here in the city. But yeah, uh, okay. same thing. But yes, I agree with you because they know that by going after me or the Martha Stewart's, uh, they know that they're going to be all over television and they love to yeah. see their name in print and they love to see their face on TV, but also, despite how remember, fucking ugly they are. <laughs> let's remember, um, that's part of the reason for the fear here, because if you take on one of these cases and you botch it, then it'll stick with you forever. And, and so for that reason, prosecutors, as much as we're all about bravado without fear or favor and all that, the fact of the matter is fear does come into play. And I, I use again, Michael, a, a, an, an example from you. I don't want to set you off on a jag. I know what you're going to say here, but your judge, your federal judge, William Pauley, who, who handled your case and I was in front of many, many dozens of times passed away in 2021. And this is a man who was a judge for, I forget, 15, 20 years, over hundreds and thousands of cases of important policy. His whole damn obituary in the New York Times was about you, Michael Cohen. It was about me. Could you imagine? Yeah, yeah well. Oh, he well, would, I'm, listen, I'm love glad. him or hate him. He would be, he, he right. would He'd come out of his grave. His, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, well, good. So let me move on for a second and ask you this, because this week, marks the 50th anniversary of Roe becoming law. Mm -hmm. But here we are now. 17 states have banned abortion, and the high court seems impervious to the will of the people. Yeah. Are you aware of any litigation that's working to help women seeking abortions literally from being criminalized in those states? And why doesn't the court have to answer to us, right? The 70% of America that wants to see Roe reinstated? So it's an interesting question. Um, you know, I do not subscribe to the view that the Supreme Court needs to just do whatever the popular majority wants. I don't think they have to be just, well, more people like this than that. They're, you know, I do think they should be applying the law. Um, and the problem is a couple things. One, 
Sometimes as a matter of just legal jurisprudence, you are supposed to think about what is the accepted norm in this country? Have we come to rely on this? That's one of the questions that was in dispute in the Roe-Dobbs decision. You know, the liberals argued, we've had this system for nearly 50 years. We now rely on it. We've come to live with it and it would be calamitous to change this now. The criticism is the justices pick and choose whatever gets them to the end result. And I think that's become increasingly clear. I mean, the way it's supposed to work, Michael, when you're in law school, they they, they teach you that the law works like a math problem. You, you have your inputs, X times Y equals, and then it comes out to what it comes out to. And maybe it's a result that is consistent with whether you're liberal or, or conservative. Maybe it's not, but that's the result. And that's where we land. When you get into the real world, and I think increasingly over the last couple of years, my view is, especially at the US Supreme Court level, it works the opposite. They start with the answer, I want to land here. And mm-hmm. then they backfill in the equation. Well, because look, these legal terms are so malleable and any halfway smart people, and they're all very smart, can take these legal concepts of reliance. Do we rely on this? And say, yes, we do. No, we don't. I mean, that's what lawyers do, We right? We can argue either way to serve our needs. And the problem is, I think that, I think this is fundamentally why the Supreme Court has really lost so much of its credibility because we see them doing this constantly. When you're able to predict exactly where every case is going to come out, right along party lines, and it's not quite every case, but it's it's very, very easy at this point, that tells you something. That tells you they're not umpires calling balls and strikes. It's more like if you let the team in the field call every pitch a strike or the, the team at bat call every pitch a ball. Um, and that's the problem that I think they're failing to grapple with. And that's why they're they're uh, public polling is is at an all-time low. And until they change that, I don't see it changing. Yeah, I don't either. But I do have to say that whether you like Joe Biden or you don't, Biden put out a statement yesterday that I thought was absolutely fantastic, where he says, today, instead of commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Supreme Court's decision in Roe versus Wade, we're acknowledging that last year, the Supreme Court took away a constitutional right from the American people. And then he goes on to say, since the Supreme Court's decision, right? Americans, time and time again, have made their voices heard. Women should be able to make these deeply personal decisions free from political interference. Yet, Republicans in Congress and across the country continue to push for a national abortion ban to criminalize doctors and nurses and to make contraception harder to access. It's dangerous, extreme, and out of touch. And then he finishes by saying, I'll continue to fight to protect a woman's right to choose. Congress must restore the protections of Roe versus Wade in federal law. It's the only way we can fully secure a woman's right to choose in every state. I don't yeah. think it could have been said better. Whoever wrote it for him, regardless of the fact that it was for him and in accordance with his principles, this is exactly yeah. what we're saying right now. Yeah. I acknowledge that the Supreme Court does not have to do what the will of the people— but you're talking about 50-year stare decisis. And yep. each one of them lied to the Judiciary Committee when they said that they would respect stare decisis. They did not. No more than George Santos is a fucking liar. So were they. And they should not be permitted, as far as I'm concerned, to retain their seat when you lie in order to be, you know, to be confirmed.
you know, there's this dance that happens at every confirmation where they're asked, do you respect precedent? And then they invent this thing of super precedent, whatever that may be. And they all give this hedgy answer that I think, you know, stops short of being perjury, but it's hedgy. And they all go, of course, I respect precedent. And then they're asked, do you believe Roe versus Wade is precedent? Do you believe Brown versus Board of Education? They say, yes. But then there's the question of when do you reverse precedent? And they all try to come up with some BS sounding legal, well, if and when, but, but they don't really have. But the real answer is when five of them want to, when the hell five of them feel like it. And this has been the, you know, this effort to overturn Roe versus Wade has been um, part of a, a campaign that goes back decades into the 80s. Um, and, and look, it's fair game to argue, but there's really no um, there's really no legal basis for it other than we just feel differently than the people who established this right in Roe versus Wade reaffirmed it in the Casey case in 1992. And by the way, we ought to get used to this because now this court is going to dig. I mean, they already have dug in. And just sort of done whatever they want. I mean, the next one they're going to do, they're going to get rid of affirmative action in the court, in, in college admissions. That one's pending right now. It's quite clear they're going to argue that that's unconstitutional, even though it's been in place for decades now. So this is the reality of where we are with the court right now. What if I told you that in 15 minutes, you can learn the most important things from over 5,500 nonfiction books and podcasts in just 15 minutes? Well, it's true, and I do it all the time. It's called Blinkist. Blinkist has a large variety of content, 5,500 titles in 27 different categories, all in little bite-sized pieces. So in 15 minutes, you learn a lot about all sorts of topics. Blinkist is audio, so you can listen in your car, on your walk, or while you're just puttering around the house. It's education and entertainment all at the same time. That's why I choose Blinkist over any other product. Their audio experience is top-notch and much, much more than just a book summary. And Blinkist Connect allows all premium users to share your account with another person of your choice. So, effectively, that's two premium accounts for the price of one. Now, 2023 is the year for you to become the person that you would like to be. And Blinkist is here to guide you through their tailored content. So whether you want to be a better parent, a smarter communicator, a more impactful team member, or a savvier investor, Blinkist can help give you the roadmap to becoming a better version of yourself with curated collections and expert-led guides. So grow a little more every day. I mean, I learned so much from deep work from Cal Newport and start with Why from Simon Sinek. So right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash culpa to start your seven-day free trial and then get 25% off of a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash culpa to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash culpa. And now, for a limited time, you can either use Blinkist Connect to share your premium account that you will get two premium subscriptions for the price of one. So let me move on and then talk to you about Rupert Murdoch. Because Rupert Murdoch testified in the Dominion voting machine fraud case last week. And 
Reporters at Fox News have already admitted that they knew that the story was bullshit, that it was just incorrect. Now, there was nothing wrong with these Dominion voting machines, but by having Murdoch testify, at least it suggests to me that Fox has some sort of a strategy to get themselves off the hook, right? Or do they? What do you think? And before you give me that answer, you know, I have this company called Crisis X, and that's exactly as a crisis management that takes media and merges it with legal strategy. This is exactly what I would be telling Rupert Murdoch to do. I do it a little bit of a different strategy, but it's exactly what I would be saying. Get yourself off of this, because this is a multi-billion dollar lawsuit that everyone believes Dominion is going to win. So this is a defamation lawsuit, which basically means Dominion has to prove that uh, whoever spoke, spoke knowing that it was false with what we call actual malice. That's really difficult to show. The problem for Fox here and the defendants is this was so obviously false. And there's quite a bit of evidence that certain people, at least within Fox, had knowledge that it was false. I mean, it it is false. Let's start with that. Note there's zero evidence that that Dominion flipped votes or anything. This is just wild theories that Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani made up. And they've even faced consequences. And they just say, like, they've basically admitted they had no basis for it. Rudy has said, like, I didn't have a chance to vet it. I don't have a chance to vet everything I say before I say it. So heads are going to roll here, not, you know, in, in the civil financial sense. I believe Dominion is going to win either at trial, a massive verdict, or they're going to end up with a huge settlement because Dominion, I mean, their entire business model is threatened here and they've named some huge numbers they're suing for in the billions. I don't know that they'll ever get that. But um, it's interesting to see who is positioning themselves, how, who is admitting we knew this wasn't true or we should have known and who is sort of still fighting. I mean, one of the main defenses we've heard is like, this was opinion. This wasn't intended to be taken literally. This wasn't intended to be taken as fact. We've heard in various lawsuits from Fox, uh, from people at Fox, including I think Tucker Carlson in one case, I don't think it was the Dominion case, said this is an opinion show and no reasonable viewer would have believed that this was fact. So they're in a really tight spot here. Um, I'll be interested to see whether Dominion is willing to settle even for some enormous amount or whether Dominion is going to insist on taking this to trial to make a point. Yeah, let's not forget that they have things like, you know, Rudy's computer. They took out boxes and boxes of documents from his apartment here in the city. Not to mention they have other text messages. There's no doubt in my mind that there's communications that were going on between all of these players. I'm not sure if it was Tucker Carlson who said it, but Sean Hannity said the same thing, which is that I'm not a journalist. I'm a talk show host. Oh, I might be confusing right? the two. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it probably it could have been either one because yeah. you know they were both following whatever the mantra was to talk about. It's not as if they're writing their shows. Right. They're just reading it off of the teleprompter. Right? You know, they don't they're not really, they, you know, may turn around and say, hey, I don't agree with this. I don't want to say this, but at the end of the day, yeah, this thing is really crazy simply because I agree with you. Dominion will win this case, but I would tell I would tell each and every one of them who is my client, this is exactly what I would be telling you to do. You need to get yourself extricated yeah. from the lawsuit, and if that means that you throw everybody else under the bus, 
I promise you, Rupert and Fox have no problem with doing that. It's interesting. You know? um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't know whether I mean, I, I don't know how Hannity or, T- or Tucker Carlson work. I assume they have quite a bit of uh, of editorial input into their own shows. But yeah, look, a, a Dominion, good for Dominion. I mean, they've stood up for themselves and uh, I think they're going to they're going to expose quite a bit here about knowingly false statements based on what we've seen. I mean, I don't know how you justify it. It, it, It's look, everyone gets things wrong. Everyone makes mistakes sometimes, but these were obvious truths that, that they had no obvious falsehoods that they had just zero proof of. And there's almost been borderline admissions now that people knew, I mean, knew that it was false and they were just repeating it. So um, it'll be interesting. Yeah, I agree with you. Now, What are we thinking about the special counsel that the Department of Justice has arranged in the Biden document case? (laughs) I was going to say, which one? I mean, Merrick. Yeah, right. So I'm talking Merrick Garland, right? Sure put that shit together real quickly. right? I mean, it was like in a period of weeks as opposed to Trump, which was years. Is the idea to have the Trump and Biden document cases run concurrently so that the public can see the difference between them, right? And how much pressure do you think Garland was under to investigate Biden? I think the main uh, purpose that Merrick Garland had here was to provide himself and the Department of Justice with some measure of political insulation. Now, I'm not saying I'm not saying he necessarily succeeded in that, but I think he kind of had no choice, especially after he had named Jack Smith special counsel on Trump. Now, you're right. It took him over two years. It took him two years or so to get there. And I'm quite critical, by the way, of Merrick Garland in the book for taking this long. But once mm-hmm. Donald Trump announced his candidacy of in 2024, Merrick Garland said, he, essentially, he felt he, we had extraordinary circumstances and he had no choice. Now, remember, Donald Trump is being investigated for classified documents. Then when the Biden issue arises, first Garland taps this U.S. attorney from Chicago, John Losh, to give a recommendation. That U.S. attorney comes back and says, I recommend special counsel. At that point, Garland has essentially no choice. Now, there definitely are differences in these cases, right? More documents with Trump. Trump is under investigation for obstruction and Biden has sort of cooperated, but I'm going to talk about that in a second. But there are similarities. These are both cases involving documents, classified documents found in personal areas. Um, Biden's you know, claim that this is all an accident. Um, there's been no direct proof to the contrary, but we've now had documents found in five different batches in his home, in different rooms of his home, in his private office. I don't know whether we'll find more, but the more documents that show up, the more different places, the harder it gets to believe that there's some sort of pure accident here. We don't know. We don't know. I have to say that. Um, and again, he has denied having any knowledge. There's no direct evidence that he did have knowledge, but this is what the investigation is for. Now, Merrick Garland, as you noted, Michael, he has a really complex political calculus to make here. By the book, what Merrick Garland will tell you and what any by the book prosecutor will tell you is, well, he's going to assess each of them completely independently. And the special counsel will come back on Trump and give a recommendation. And the special counsel will come back on Biden and give a recommendation. And the one has nothing to do with the other. And Garland will independently decide whether he wants to go with the special counsel recommendation or overrule it, which he can. And that is correct. That is the way it will happen. But this notion that Merrick Garland is some sort of cyborg who does not operate in the world of politics, is nonsense. He is a political creature. I don't mean that in any kind of criticism, but you don't get to the federal bench. You don't get nominated for the Supreme Court. You don't get nominated as attorney general unless you are a D.C. creature who understands politics. Of course he's aware 
that Donald Trump is running for president. That's why he put a special counsel in place. Of course, he's aware Joe Biden is a sitting president. And of course, he's got to be aware of the, the appearance of this and the timing. I mean, do you announce them, as you said, Michael, concurrently? Do you wait until they're both done and said, here's where we came out on this, here's where we came out on that? Do do you just announce your decision on each one as they come in? What if one comes in first? When you announce the decision on that, charge or don't charge, can't charge Joe Biden right now because he's sitting president. But is that going to influence or increase pressure on what happens with the second case? And I think it will. I do think as a practical matter, I understand there are differences, but I think as a practical matter, the Biden case has underscored that there are more complexities to the Donald Trump documents case than people understood at the beginning. I've heard some people say, oh, the Trump documents case is the same thing as a drug case. You had kilos, five kilos of coke in your car. That's it. End of story. It's like a stolen jewelry case. There's a stolen jewelry. You're holding it. And I think now the Joe Biden case has shown why that is a glib, inaccurate view that no one who's ever actually tried a case would say in good faith because it's way more complicated. And ultimately, what this is going to come down to is knowledge and intent. Did either person know the documents were there? Biden says, no, Trump has admitted he knew the documents were there. But then intent. Did they have criminal intent? And the other thing I just want to say on this is I keep hearing people saying, well, but Joe Biden's cooperating and Donald Trump's not. Therefore, Donald Trump should be charged and Joe Biden shouldn't. That's only a halfway true answer. Because Joe Biden's cooperating, he won't be charged with obstruction, presumably, if he's fully cooperating. And Donald Trump might. But it doesn't mean Joe Biden is necessarily free and clear on the underlying documents. There still could be you can commit a crime and then cooperate. I'm not saying Joe Biden has committed a crime, but people are acting like the cooperation just wipes the slate clean and nobody can ever be charged with anything if they cooperate. Obviously, that's nonsense. Obviously, you can't just undo a crime. So we we need to see whether there's evidence that Joe Biden had knowledge and intent. Again, We've not seen that evidence yet, but the fact that he's cooperating doesn't mean it's over. And and there's right. no. It's, way just, it's not an exoneration to him for for what's done. I am so yeah. so tired of all of this bullshit. As far as I'm concerned, they should be. And if I was the attorney general, they're not. They're not concurrent cases. They're right. completely separate. That's how it should be. But here's what bothers, and it's exactly how it should be. And here's what bothers me the most. I promise you, if you had one document in your possession, your ass would be in jail already. No different than like what happened with reality winners. Do you remember that they also sure. went after, uh, who was it? Um, not uh, Sandy Berger, uh, David it, Petraeus. It, it, yeah. Petraeus is who I was thinking. Yep. Right. I mean, his whole life turned upside down over one document. I hear you, but the let me, let me draw one distinction. Is, though. I have a, I have a big problem with the fact that once again, if you are of a certain elk, you are high level government or involved in government, especially as a president, vice president, and so on, that the laws don't apply to you yeah. the same way that they apply to everybody else. Meaning that we really do have two separate systems of justice. But where I am the most offended on all of this is the fact that we have people that are working for us with our taxpayer dollars NARA, or whoever's supposed to be responsible. These documents are beta stamped. It's not as if that they don't have corresponding numbers to it. it the way I compare it, in my building, we have what's called the key track system. Right. And it holds your extra key in the event that you get locked out or you don't have your keys or what have you. Yeah. And if after 24 hours, that key is not put back into the system... 
It fucking beeps. And right. it doesn't stop beeping till someone puts their initials next to it as to why they stopped it from beeping. Yeah. How is it possible that Joe Biden had documents for seven years, that Trump had it for three years, out of the system, and they knew that it wasn't there, or they should have known? What are these people doing? First of all, I think most of these people, like, I'm fighting with FOIA on a regular basis. <laughs> I think they all fucking suck. I think that government breeds laziness, right? And that's the big problem. The fact that Joe Biden can have those out for six, seven years, the fact that Trump could have it out for years, I don't care how many, neither of them should have had those documents out. And if it's a crime, it's a crime. And if it's a crime for one, it's a crime for both. Well, I, look, I, th I think you're seeing, again, a perfect example of why prosecutors are way more hesitant to charge. The more powerful a person is, the more hesitant. I mean, there are some differences, though. Like, if you take Petraeus's case, knowledge and intent were easy, right? He 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 obviously knew he was taking these documents, and then he gave them to his biographer. And his, so his intent was to publish them. You know, it's not that straightforward on, we don't know really what the exact intent was on either of, of Trump or Biden, but you're absolutely right. There would be a thousand times more deliberation and and consideration and benefit of the doubt before either president or former president would be charged or recommended for a charge than there would be any normal person. No question about that. Yeah. And at the end of the day, let's look at like reality winner, five years. To me, yeah. again, it should just be that NARA needs to do their job. Explain to me why yeah. a president... Cannot be told whatever you want to take out of the White House must be packed three days before you leave. Right. And then you have somebody there from NARA with a fucking video camera with your cell phone, for God's sakes, videotaping what you're doing. Oh, you know, you can't take that. Let's yeah. put that off to the side. We could talk about that later. Instead, Trump walks out with 33 plus boxes. This guy walks out and so on. The reason I great, say yeah. this is not mm -hmm. because I have an issue so much with, you know, whether Trump ends up getting prosecuted on it. And this is now going to force Biden. You know, neither of them, by the way, should run in 2024. Could you imagine two guys who both have now, you know, have documents that were taken out of the White House, top secret? The whole thing to me is just a distraction. But what bothers me more is the fact that you have people who are allegedly doing a job, meaning NARA, right. and they're really not. And it's putting our national security at risk. Now, I don't think Joe Biden, and again, this is my opinion because, you know, I'm not a big fan of Donald's, right? Um, certainly any longer. You don't say. There's no doubt in my mind that he would show those documents to someone. But then right. again, I don't know whether Joe Biden, you know, or Hunter or somebody else maybe showed it to somebody for some benefit. That's the reason why well, this, no one should have it. Plain exactly. And, and this is why this is why the actual content of those documents is going to be really important to prosecutors, because if those documents just relate to random things that Joe Biden was dealing with as president or senator or VP, or I should say VP, not as president, um, then that's one thing. But if they hypothetically relate to business dealings, to things that his family was involved in, then you're going to be in a different spot when it comes to intentionality. Right. No, let me ask you this then. How does Merrick Garland then keep from having to share the information about these investigations with the likes of Kevin McCarthy yeah. and other Republicans that are legitimately gunning for Democrats? Merrick Garland needs to tell Congress to go to hell when it comes to specific ongoing investigations. So 
clearly the new Republican majority in the House intends to be very aggressive in their investigations. They want to dig into the Joe Biden documents. They want to dig into the, the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago. They want to dig into Hunter Biden. I do. But Congress absolutely has oversight authority. They have the power and they should have the power to bring the attorney general up to Capitol Hill, make them answer questions, but not about specific ongoing cases. They want to ask Merrick Garland about what are your investigative priorities? What are your law enforcement tactics? Uh, what's your resource needs? Um, you know, how are you going about uh, executing search warrants? Any of those questions, totally fair game. Attorney General can and should uh, testify about that. But if they want to dig into specific cases, any attorney general has an obligation to say, I will not do that. And we now know Merrick Garland, he sent a letter just recently saying, I'm not going to go into these, essentially. I'm not going to go into ongoing cases. And the notion that there's been weaponization of DOJ is ridiculous. First of all, weaponization which way? I mean, we have investigations right now of Donald Trump, of Joe Biden, of Hunter Biden. I mean, who are we thinking that they're favoring? And, and let me say, this is a long bipartisan, nonpartisan tradition of AGs. No Congress that I can ever remember has demanded, well, it's, it's been demanded, but no AG has given into, let me tell you about this ongoing case. In fact, no attorney general was ever held in contempt in this country until 2012, when Eric Holder refused to answer questions about the Fast and Furious scandal with this drug trafficking, or excuse me, gun trafficking investigation that went haywire. And I write about this in the book. Um, he was held in contempt, but wasn't prosecuted. Why? Because who decides? DOJ. Of course, Eric Holder and DOJ aren't going to prosecute Eric Holder. 2019, Michael, you'll be shocked to know Bill Barr was held in contempt because he refused to turn over uh, over information about the effort to add a citizenship question to the census. And you'll be really shocked to know that the courts later found that Bill Barr was not completely truthful in his explanations to the courts about why they did Shocker. that. Um, he too was held in contempt. And so now the question is, will we end up in a situation where Merrick Garland's held in contempt? It'll be purely ceremonial. But it, I think if Merrick Garland ends up in this position, he has to hold the line. He has to tell them, nope, not doing it. And he said that the other day. And if it means going into contempt, it means going into contempt. And, and so be it. But that is a bedrock DOJ principle that cannot at all be compromised. You know what would be a really fucking weird twist in this? Like what happened to me, like in my case? where yeah. the former president gets his mushroom pecker pulled by a porn star, and I end up suffering the consequences. Can you imagine, right, if Biden ends up paying a price for the mishandling of classified documents and then Trump doesn't? I mean, I mean wouldn't that just be sort of par right. for this and course? That's why, and that's why I think Merrick Garland's in a, in a tight spot here. And I, I think that's very hard to to justify based on what we know publicly. Again, there's there's plenty we don't know. But also I think it's why... The Biden document story, in a way, is a, another lucky break for Donald Trump, because I think politically, even yes, there are differences. We've talked about that. We know the differences. But I think it gets that much harder for Merrick Garland to say, I'm going to charge Donald Trump if he also says, and Biden didn't do anything worthy of a charge. That may well be the way the cards fall. But politically, that becomes even more explosive than just indicting or not indicting Donald Trump alone. Yeah, and this also gives, of course, yeah. the Republicans the opportunity now to attempt to impeach, you know, Biden, which, of course, you know that they're going to do. If they were going to run off of Afghanistan and COVID and so on, they would know that they'd be the laughing stock of America. But now at least they have something which is, in most yeah, people's perhaps. eyes, legitimate. You have documents, you have documents. Well, you know, it's, one should not be any different than the other, and they should not be any different than you and I. So again, moving on here, 
What do you think of Robert Hur, the man heading the Biden investigation? Mm-hmm. Now, he is a Trump appointee, but that, of course, doesn't mean that he's going to be biased. He seems to be you know, a former JAG officer, so yep. you know, it doesn't make him biased at all. He does, however, have a page on the Federalist Society's website. I mean, I'm just saying he sort of goes to that ilk as opposed to being, we'll call it, as as Donald would say, right, the radical left, right? I mean, he's certainly far from that. Should we be worried that he's also trying to protect Trump? Um, I don't know Robert Herr personally. Let me start with that. Um, I don't know that he's in really any position to protect Trump. He's obviously investigating Biden. I think it was the right move by Merrick Garland to choose someone who is a straight shooter, federal prosecutor. And I know people who have worked with him who have said publicly and elsewhere that he has conservative ideology, but it doesn't impact the way he has acted as a prosecutor. He actually was the one who refused to pick up the investigation of John Kerry for Logan at ridiculous Logan Act violations. The SDNY refused it. They tried to get her to take it up. And he said, no, that's ridiculous. I'm not going there. I think you had to pick someone with either absolutely neutral or conservative credentials because God help you if you're Merrick Garland and you pick someone who was an Obama nominee, even if the person's right down the middle or has any, you know, donated to Democrats, then nobody would ever credit his findings. And so I think it was, I think if I'm in Merrick Garland's seat, I would look for someone exactly like Robert Hur. I would say, I want someone who, if anything, their history leans conservative, leans Republican, but also is an absolute straight shooter when it comes to prosecution. So I think he's, he's, I think he's the right person for the job. And look, I'm willing to say, I don't know the guy. I'm willing to say that I will, I, I will start off by giving him the benefit of the doubt. And, and, uh, you know, I, I will assume the best about his intentions and his work. We've got a very different kind of sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show, a podcast you should definitely check out since you're a fan of high-quality, fascinating podcasts hosted by interesting people. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show, so I'd recommend our listeners check it out. I also recommend our listeners check out Jordan's conversations with Michael McFall about what it's like to stand up to Putin and Oliver Bullock. He talks about why thieves and crooks run the world. Both amazing episodes. There's an episode for everyone, though, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode all about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick and how going on or off the pill can change elements of our personalities. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life, whether it's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy the show and we think you will as well. There's just so much here. So check out jordanharbinger.com forward slash start for some episode recommendations or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, now I want to hit you with everyone's favorite question. 
All right. Which case is mo- which case is <laughs> most likely to bring an Trump down? Right. Oh. Which one do you think is most likely to bring down? It's it's actually looking, you know, like the E. Jean Carroll case is picking up steam. So yep. is the Fulton County election fraud. So is the New York district attorney. You right. may have seen that once again for my 14th visit to We're the DA. <laughs> so is the attorney general here in New York who allegedly referred uh, certain matters to the Southern District of New York as well as the IRS. Yep. Which one do you think it's going to be? Okay, so first of all, let me take all the civil stuff and put it in a different group because I, I, as much as that he, Donald Trump could get hit with heavy judgments in those cases, that's not going to take him down. I think E. Jean Carroll, from what I can see, has a very strong lawsuit and claim supported by the evidence and sort of common sense. I think Letitia James, while I have serious issues, I believe Letitia James, I don't believe, I know because I, can, I saw her campaign against Donald Trump. I think that's a politically driven lawsuit. I know that's, she said it. Um, but I think she will succeed. I think the evidence that she laid out is is quite clear that he did inflate and deflate values, as you testified, Michael, in Congress. Those are all civil. On the criminal side, I want to draw a distinction, another distinction here. Sorry to be so. No, wait, wait, no, no, Ellie, yeah. don't forget what she yeah. did do is she. Yes, it is civil. What she did do, though, is that she sent uh, two aspects of that civil case to the Southern District of New yeah. York. Yeah. And that's the tax fraud case. Yep. Yep. So we don't know where that's going to go. I think the most likely to indict, now you said bring down, but again, indict is not necessarily bring down. I think it's quite clear that the Fulton County DA intends to indict Donald Trump on on election interference. I think every sign that we're seeing out there, every somewhat thinly veiled public comment by the DA makes clear that she has every intent to charge Donald Trump. She's taking way too long. We're already, again, two plus years out. You know, the heart of that case is the Raffensperger call. That call became public over two years ago. Um, I think it's becoming increasingly clear that she intends to indict that case. Will it result in conviction? I think is a very serious uphill climb. And I actually have a whole chapter in this book where I lay out why this case will be difficult, not impossible, but difficult to prosecute and the various obstacles that she's going to face if she charges. But I think the one that's most likely to bring him down is if DOJ actually pulls the trigger on a charge. Mar-a-Lago, I think, is much more likely than January 6th at this point. Um, If Mm -hmm. DOJ charges, they will have a stronger legal basis, a stronger constitution. There's a a legitimate constitutional question about whether a county local DA can actually charge someone, a former president, for something touching on office. Um, But DOJ, I believe this is DOJ's job. I think if you're talking about the kind of charges we're talking about with Donald Trump, DOJ has a unique responsibility. And so, so to boil that down, I think the DA in Fulton County is the most likely to indict first, but I think... In terms of ultimate success from a prosecutorial point of view, conviction, I think it's going to come down to DOJ. And what, what do you think about the New York DA? I don't know. I mean, he passed. This is, I should say, Alvin Bragg is a friend of mine and a former colleague. Um, you know, he passed on bringing the initial financial fraud crimes. They've obviously reignited their interest, Michael, as you know, having gone in there recently. Um, that's really hard to read. I don't know. You know, New York state laws also allow for some pretty low level, but maybe provable crimes, you know, falsification of business documents, which it may or may not be a felony depending on the circumstances. So I, I, I don't have a good read on that one. Let me just I'll put it that way. All right. Well, I, I'm going to say nothing because I was asked to say nothing, but yeah. I believe all of them, uh, the first one who's going to indict. I think is going to be 
the impetus for the others to jump on indictments as well. Yeah, Just my I think opinion. That could well be. Right. No one wants right. There, there's a there's a play here who goes first and comfort in numbers. So then speaking of January sixth, are there any indications that there's gonna be these indictments on that coming? Because you brought it up. Because yeah. now that Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans are in charge of the House. Will the insurrectionists still in Congress get away with what they, you know, with their actions in terms of trying to overthrow the government? Because it's not just about Donald Trump. You see, this is the problem. Yep. We all concentrate on right. Donald, Donald, Donald. Fuck him, right? He's not the only one. There are people inside that Congress making decisions for you and me every single day who are as responsible as yep. Donald. Do you think that these folks going to get away with it? Yes. In terms of McCarthy and Hawley and Jim Jordan, 100%, no one's going to go anywhere near them. No one's going to touch them. Like I said before, the January 6th committee, even the Democrats and, and Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger on the January 6th committee treated them with special treatment with kid gloves, subpoenaed them, and then didn't do anything about it. DOJ is no way going to indict Kevin McCarthy and whoever else. It's just for many of the reasons that I discuss in the book, and I do get into that in the book. And you raise a really good point here, Michael. We are so all focused on Donald Trump, but what, what happened? To, I mean, look, we're two plus years out from January 6th. Jeffrey Clark, John Eastman, Rudy, all these guys. Again, maybe Merrick Garland gets there. Jack Smith, we don't know what he's doing. He seems like an aggressive prosecutor. But again, here we sit two plus years after January 6th, not a single powerful person, not a single person in any reasonable proximity to political power has been charged with anything relating to January 6th. Yeah, the Oath Keepers, but the Oath Keepers are not politically They're not powerful. significant. They're not right. significant. I mean, they're the it's point. a dangerous group, they're but like they're, not, they're not politically anything. Yes, I Correct. Agree. What yeah. happened to the Josh Holies, the Marjorie Taylor Greens? What happened to Eric and Laura Trump? I mean, what happened to all Rudy, as you said, Kaludi, drunken Giuliani? What happened to all of these people? I right. I don't know. And again, to me, the danger is it just goes to show that there really are two systems of justice right. in America. Now, speaking of just, I have one last question for you, because sure. as you know, Ellie, the hour goes by very quickly here on May yeah, Culpa when you're having fun, as <laughs> we always do. So I ask you this because as a former prosecutor and you have your finger, you know, on the pulse of everything I see on television, I really do need to know. Do you know anything about this manslaughter case against Alec Baldwin? Because for me, yeah. it seems unclear what the chain of command was on the set. And I know that I he was the producer and the buck stops here. Who should ultimately be held responsible, right? Especially that there's no evidence, as yeah. far as the way I see it, that this wasn't an accident. Now, apparently, the DA in New Mexico feels that she has a case. What's your insight into this? I'm skeptical. I, I don't think it's a strong case based on what we know. I think it's an overreach by the DA, again, based on what we know. And I'll tell you, tell you why that is. Yes, it is a crime under New Mexico law, involuntary manslaughter, if you negligently cause a, a murder um, or a death. Um, she can't even answer some of the most fundamental questions, the DA. Um, for example, they can't tell you how that live round came to be on the set. I mean, you have to prove your case beyond a reasonable doubt unanimously. Any defense lawyer is going to go, folks, they want you to send him to jail for five years, actual five years. You can't really say the, the sentence in front of the jury, but they want to convict this man and they can't even tell you how that bullet got on set. Right there is reasonable doubt. That's number one. Number two, 
The DA was asked by Josh Campbell, my, my friend and colleague at CNN, are you, have you charged Alec Baldwin in his capacity as an actor or a producer? And the DA goes, both? I mean, those are completely different legal and factual questions. She doesn't even know. Looking at it from an actor's point of view, they, all you need to know is this. You and I have seen plenty of stunt people and, and um, armors, you know, people who are experts in this area in Hollywood go on TV. Half of them say, yeah, actor usually does and should look and, you know, inspect the gun. Half of them say, absolutely not. That would be dangerous. That's not the actor's job. Right there, you have reasonable doubt. You're going to have dueling experts, all of whom know what they're talking about. And it's not going to be clear that this is obviously uh, observed. Um, Don Lemon read on on air a text he got from a friend of his. He didn't say who, who's an actor, who said, no actor is responsible for checking the gun. You you rely on the experts. You rely on the armor. So that's that. And then there's the question of, as a producer, but it's not clear what exactly Alec Baldwin's responsibility was. People, big names like Alec Baldwin get listed as producers, EPs all the time, but it doesn't mean they're necessarily responsible for everything that happens on set. Look, this is a tragedy for all involved. Um, yes. Maybe there, there have been lawsuits, but I just don't see this as a case where Alec Baldwin um, ought to go to prison for any amount of time, never mind five years. I think it's a horrible, tragic accident. A lot of mistakes were made, but I don't know that you can chalk any of that up to criminality. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I just keep scratching my head every time I see this being discussed on television. Um, yeah. You know, he, they take that producer role because it means more money for them, you know, when the thing goes, you know, goes live. Yeah. But short of that, you know, I too would like to know how live... Look, you know, one of the thoughts that's coming out about the live ammo is because they're on the set of a Western. There's a lot of room. These guys, you know, that are there, they do target practice against, you know, bottles right, and can, cans. Beer and cans and, and stuff, yeah. And so, right, all that stupid shit. So, yeah, it is a tragic, tragic yeah. scenario. My heart goes out to her, you know, to the loss of life and to her family and so on. But I think it would be a travesty if, in fact, that. Alec Baldwin ended up, you know, because then again, now, of course, what is everybody saying? It's because it's a he portrayed Donald on Saturday Night Live. Somehow oh, Donald Lord. has to get involved in everything. That's preposterous. Right? Which, yeah, it is. Preposterous. I can't believe that, but look, that, that, that's absurd. Yeah, it's stupid. And I hope that they do the right thing. Ellie, thank you, as always, for joining me on Maya Culpa. Your insight is phenomenal. Untouchable fantastic uh it's definitely the bookend to revenge and i think that <laughs> you should read them both so that you fully understand the complexities and the dangers that right now we are all facing as it relates to our justice uh department and how different justice deals with you as an individual versus someone of power yeah thank you very much michael always uh, a blast to talk with you i'll see you soon i'll see you back in new york and now for today's mea culpa. Is there anything so stupid as calling Michelle Obama a man? I mean, it's been all over social media this week. It's some anti-woke Republican shit that I just don't understand. I mean, is it supposed to be funny? Because it's not. Is this how they're supposed to own the libs? It doesn't. I mean, you just say some cruel little shit over and over again until what? Until Michelle Obama magically turns into a man? Michelle Obama will still be their worst nightmare tomorrow, next year, and the decade after that. But she will never be a man, that I can promise you. Racism is what drives these nasty comments and memes about Miss Obama. 
And the Make America Great Again crowd is here for it. Like they are here for Ron DeSantis' anti-woke campaign that includes all the colorful issues, education, transgendered youth, healthcare, you name it. He fucking hates it. But let's face it, white Christian conservatives are using the term woke to mean anything that they hate too. Before the MAGAs made it a bad thing, woke was a black phrase meaning that they were politically progressive and aware of the issues in their community. But when used by fucking fucktards like DeSantis, it becomes a racial slur. Anti-woke is just another way to say we don't accept anyone who isn't white, who isn't Christian and conservative. So what is being a conservative about today? I mean, who are they? Lots and creeps who have no tolerance for diversity. You see, I used to think of conservatives as upright citizens, financially frugal, but they wouldn't say shit if they had a mouthful. The old conservative adage was, you don't discuss sex, you don't discuss religion or politics at the dinner table. So you could tolerate conservatives because they didn't press their agenda on you or try to convert you like the dreaded born-again Christians. But now, the born-agains and the conservatives have merged into one big fucking anti-woke party. But this isn't a fun party, it's the GOP. Bradley Anishi's new book, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next, traces his growing estrangement from the faith he once zealously championed. Onishi grew to see his faith as less than about Jesus and more about perpetuating a certain myth of the United States, one that he says forms the bedrock of white Christian nationalism. Onishi is part Japanese and he talks about being different, but how he would never discuss it with other Christians except to poke fun at himself. And I quote, The best way to deal with being an Asian American Christian was to make jokes about it. When I left, I had to face up to my internalized racism and self-hatred and guilt about how I viewed myself and my culture. And if you pay any attention to Anishi, the Christian right is preparing for war. The culture wars are just the warm-up act for the real thing. The goal of the civic war that they're gearing up for is to rebuild this country in their own image, which is theocratic. Orthodoxy in any religion is problematic because it's us or them. My God is better than your God. But this isn't a Christian country, no matter what the Christians want to tell you. The Founding Fathers called for a separation of church and state, and religious freedom is written right into the Constitution. And what makes our current Supreme Court so fucking frightening is that they are all anti-woke theocracy that wants to remake our society into an image of America that's basically Catholic, like like all six conservative judges on the bench. When you consider that since the Dobbs decision, there are states considering putting a travel ban on pregnant women. Why? So that they can't seek an abortion. I mean, you see the insane amount of damage that religious ideology can have on the lives of everyday people just trying to get by. I mean, go no further than watching The Handmaid's Tale. It's exactly the same shit. So, being woke is a good thing. It's a really good thing. And don't let anyone tell you differently.
And as always, thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media, written by Jimmy Jelinek and Paula Killen. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. This is-